0: We've been journeying through the book of Revelation for like 13 weeks. So we have spent some time in the book of Revelation. And it's been really, you know, a a few things as we close out our series on the book of Revelation today that I just wanted to share. The first thing was I didn't realize how much I needed this book. You know, when we started the study right in chapter one, it's the only book in all of the Bible that says that you'll be blessed if you just read it and even more blessed if you read it and, and, and understand it so take some time to study it and dig into it and and we've done that we've spent months two months three months on this book and i've really really needed it and the second thing i've i have found in studying this book is specifically the book of revelation but i think you can say this through, for the whole bible is there's no bottom there's no bottom Like, as soon as you dig and dig and dig and you feel like, okay, I've arrived at the foundation, you dig some more and there's more. (laughs) There's deeper things there that that we haven't covered. There's so much there. And I I think that's what's so cool about the Bible, but especially the book of Revelation. And, And I would say the third thing that I've found with this book is it's not a book you read for information. It's a book that you read to stir your imagination. And you've probably noticed that. Right out of the gate, it opens with this, this, this grandiose vision of Jesus. And then there's dragons. And there's three-headed beasts. And there's wars and rumors of wars. And there's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And there's the elders around the throne. And there's the lamb that was slain that's now alive. And, and there's all of this imagery in the book. And so it's one of those books that you're not reading to get information. You're reading it to stir the imagination. You're reading it to dream. You're reading it to open up your perspective on who God is and what he's doing in the world and in our life. And and so, again, it's not so much a book about the end of time. It's a a book about Jesus. It's the revelation, one revelation of Jesus. The first verse and the last verse end exactly the same. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. This is the revelation of Jesus jesus christ which god gave him to show his servants what's going to happen on the earth last verse of the last chapter of the last book amen revelation 22 verse 20 21 come lord jesus the grace of the lord jesus be with god's people so we found now that the book of revelation begins and ends with jesus And so one of the things that we know not to do is we don't interpret this book based on current events. We don't interpret this book based on breaking news. We don't bust this out and watch CNN and Fox News and try to figure out what's going on because if we do, it's going to take us to a place of anxiousness. It's going to take us to a place of fear. But what we know now that this book has unveiled some things about Jesus that have never been mentioned before in all of the Bible. That in the Gospels, right, we we, we learn about his life, we learn about his ministry, we learn about who he was when he walked the planet. And in this book, we're given incredible imagery of who he is and what he is doing right now. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. That he's seated on the throne waiting on his father to give him the command to return back, to take us, to be with him. And so the imagery and the power and, and just the absolute awesomeness of what we see in this book i've just been incredibly blessed by it and what i want to do is is really kind of expound more on just that one word jesus if this book is about jesus which it is not so much about current events or world history or what's going to take place it's about it's about jesus his name really what is what does his name mean Now, we know Christ means the anointed one, but the word Jesus, the best definition that I could find, just basically means the Lord saves. His name means Savior. And have you noticed throughout this book, as we read, we see Jesus showing up over and over and over in some different form or some different image doing exactly that? In chapter one, he shows up as the prince of the earth. And he gives correction and he gives comfort and encouragement to the seven churches that existed in that time in chapters two and chapters three. So he shows up to save the church. He's walking in the midst of the candlesticks, which we know now were the churches of that day. They were the light of the world. And so he shows up to to save the church. And then we see in chapter five, he shows up as the lion and the lamb. Two opposites, right? Right just on complete sides of each other. Lions have nothing in common with lambs, but we see him as a tender lamb showing up to bring comfort, to bring the sacrifice that's needed for his people. But then we see him showing up as the lion of the tribe of Judah, saying, you can't mess with my kids, right? And so he's showing up over and over in this book to rescue his people. Chapter 17, he shows up again as the Lord of Lords. Chapter 19, he comes back from this great battle that we know as the Battle of Armageddon. And he's riding on a white horse. And around his, his, his robe, there's a new title given to him that says he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But the theme is exactly the same. He shows up to rescue He shows up to save. And I'm finding in my life, and if somebody will sit down and be completely honest with me, they'll tell me about a time in their life when they needed to be rescued. And there's going to come a time in every one of our lives where we may dig ourselves into a hole, or life puts us there, and we can't get out. And I'm thankful that if we were to boil this book down into one sentence, it's when life throws chaos your way whether you stumble into it or it knocks on your door there is a rescuer. There is one who at the mention of his name will rush in to your life and save you from whatever may be happening in your life may it be suffering may it be persecution and and, and you know most of the time when I heard this book taught on it was kind of like well things are going to get really bad but then, but then Jesus is going to kind of take you out of the trouble before it gets too bad. And now that I've gone through the book again, I'm reading that there may be some trouble that happens in my life and in your life that we have to walk through it. That we're going to have to call on the Lord who saves in the midst of our pain, in the midst of the struggle, and in the midst of the wars that are happening within our own eternal lives, like like that that we have a God who is not afraid of the mess. Aren't you thankful for that? I know you're looking cute this morning, and you got your Sunday clothes on and you're dressed up, but I'm talking about when life really throws you a curveball and you're in a mess. This book reminds me that we serve a God who's not scared to get his hands dirty. We serve a God who's not intimidated by any enemy on this planet, whether natural or supernatural. The book begins, the book ends with Jesus. In the Hebrew word for salvation, I like this. It means means to, to, to broaden, to become spacious, or to enlarge. And I think that just going through this book, for me, it has done that. It's giving me a new perspective of who God is. Because sometimes life can kind of get you cramped and into a corner. Sometimes life can feel overwhelming. Sometimes life can try to put us into small places. But I think as we read this book and we learn more about Jesus and we learn more about who he is and we learn that he has a plan, I think it does the opposite. If we're reading the book and we want to go hide, maybe we're reading it wrong. And I've done that. If we're reading a book and we're thinking, I'm going to buy some acreage north of here, build a big fence and just survive until Jesus comes, then maybe we're reading it wrong. Maybe we're interpreting it off the news and off of what's going on in the world. But the deeper that we get in this book and the closer I think that we get to God, the more we're going to begin to take these tent stakes of our life and let more people in. The more we're going to want to go out, and tell people about the goodness of God, the more that we're going to want to invite people into our life and into our community to experience what God has done for us. And that is the theme of the Bible. That's the theme of the Bible. John three 16, y'all know that verse. I didn't even put it in your notes because I know you know it. Most famous verse probably in, 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 in all of the Scripture, that God so loved the world that he, he gave his only begotten son, Right? To, to rescue the world and what I love about that word world is God so loved the world that that actual word in Greek means cosmos and so it's beyond just people that God so loved the world it's not just the folks in it that that's that's everything in the world that's the planet itself that's that's the environment that's nature that's that's uh, and we see this in the book of Revelation when he talks about his return, that not only is he going to set the world right between brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and fathers and and sons and moms and dads like he 's going to set the world right between people but he 's also going to bring healing to the world that is that is' it's in bad shape <laughs> that 's slowly heading in the opposite direction and we see this in the different the, the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bowl judgments and all those things that we that we read about it it affected not only the people on the planet but it affected the planet he's going to save that as well so we have this great rescuer that's going to come and so to try to sum up the last few chapters of this book is really hard to do because there's a lot going on but but there's there's this one great final battle We've read about a lot of battles. We've read about different kings. And we, read, you know, we talked about the, the horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse that kind of kicks this, what we know as the tribulation period, off. One of those horses was a red horse known as the war horse. And, and, and so Matthew 24 is one of those parallel passages that go right along with the, the very end of the book of Revelation. And so we know that the world is going to be in turmoil. We know that the world is going to be fighting, that there's going to be wars and, and rumors of wars. And it all comes kind of to a climax, with, which is known as the Battle of Armageddon. But what I love about it is it doesn't end there, <laughs> right? Like, like, it's the it's, Revelation is one of those books, if you just jump right into the middle of it, it's going to scare you. You know what I mean? Like, like you're going to read it, and, and it's going to be like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my. It's like you think there's no way it can get worse than this. And then it's like you turn the page, you're like, holy moly, it does. You know, and it's like, and it seems like it's kind of doing this, but it's not. That there, there's a glorious ending. There's a, there's a final judgment that happens that where God writes all the wrongs in the world. And it's known as this, this, this great battle, the Battle of Armageddon. And so we've given some imagery. We know that this place is an actual location in, right outside of Israel. And we know that all these things are there. But what I love even more beyond the battle, because we all know about battles, right? We all know about wars. You don't need to hear any more about that stuff. Like we all know the, the, the fruit of that type of thing. But how does, how does God make it all right? 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 I mean, I know about the chaos, I know about the pain, I know about the war, I know about the struggle. I don't have to give you a, a lesson in that because you've lived a little while and you know what that's like. But how does God make it right? How does he bring healing? And I think the best way I could say it is, is at the end of this book, it really wraps up with a destructive war and a healing meal, right? We don't get zapped up into a spaceship God doesn't take us all to another planet and kind of like we go through therapy for a few years to, to deal with what we dealt with on this side of eternity. No, 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 no. It's an invitation to a meal. And if you look at the life of Jesus, it blows my mind how much ministry he did around food. He taught in the synagogue. He really mostly worshiped in the synagogue. But the real ministry of Jesus was at the table. His first miracle, he turned water into wine, was at a wedding feast. It was a supper. You know what a supper is, y'all? It's a supper. There's a big, long table. We're eating. We're having fun. We're talking about life. We're celebrating the good, right? Uh, And and so the first miracle, he kicks his ministry off at the table in a wedding. They ran out of wine. You know what I'm saying? That's a bad deal in a wedding. And so, you know, his, his mom goes and says tells the 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 banquet the one that threw the party go ask my son and do whatever he says to do but the point is that the the first miracle of Jesus takes place at a table another big miracle that happens it's last meeting before the resurrection right the last meeting before the resurrection he knows he's got a few days left and he could have done anything he could have done anything He could have, you know, I want to go and sit at the Sea of Galilee. I want to go up on the Mount of Olives. I want to, you know, experience this earth one more time. He didn't ask for that. He says, I want you to go. I want you to go find this. There's a a guy, there's a room that we can have. It's called, it's an upper room is what he called it. I want you to go and prepare a meal because I want to eat with my friends. That was his last request. And they they set this table, and so he 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 eats with his friends, his disciples, and he begins to minister to them at a table. And he shows them a, a type of leadership the world's never known. He shows them that the last will be first and the first will be last. He shows them that the greatest in the world don't have the most servants, the greatest in the world serve the most. He washes feet, and then back in that day, all their feet was nasty, okay? I mean, they would have, you know, I mean, just they walked around in sandals. I would literally wear sandals all the time if I could. But, but they're walking along roadways where there's no cars, as horses. And you know what horses do? Yeah. And so they're walking through all of that stuff. And he gets down on his knees and he begins to preach to them. Not a synagogue. Not a church. Around a table. One of the last interactions he has after the resurrection He's walking around in his glorified body saying, I told y'all, <laughs> you know, saying? I was going to get back up. Peter had went back fishing. He panicked, didn't know what to do. He was upset. There's no telling what all was going on in his mind and in his heart. He had denied Jesus three times in a very, very bold and blatant way just a few days earlier. And he was probably depressed, probably defeated. And he thought, I'm going to go back to my old life. Jesus is gone. I denied him. He didn't get up out of the grave like he said he was going to do. I made a mistake. And then he appears on the beach. <laughs> Peter's so excited, he jumps out of his clothes, jumps out of the boat, goes down. And, and, and we know it's at, the, it's, at the, it's at sunrise. And they're on the beach. And Jesus doesn't start giving him theology. Jesus doesn't start giving him like, hey, I need you to write this stuff down. This is how I want you to run this until I'll come back. He doesn't do any of that he says you got some fish you know the story let's see and so around a fire around a meal something powerful happens in the life of peter because just a few days earlier he denied jesus three times and we know it was when the cock was crowing right the rooster it was right at sunrise again same time same moment for all I know, there were roosters crowing. And could you imagine what happened in Peter's life when he heard a rooster crow? What do you think he was reminded of? Denying Jesus. He was reminded of his, probably the worst mistake that he'd ever made. And so here's Pastor Jesus sitting on the beach, roosters are crowing, and he asked him three questions. He denied Jesus three times. He asked him three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He said, Good, if you do, feed my sheep. And so he recommissions Peter, not in the synagogue, didn't anoint his head with oil, didn't put a robe on him, didn't put a crown on him. He does it on the beach over some fish. Let's fast forward to right now the tribulation period. The world has been through incredible pain, incredible suffering. How does God bring healing? to our lives how does god bring healing to the world revelation 19 verse 9 write this down blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb it's at a table and we all know what that is like right we don't know. I, I can't understand the formalities of, formalities of religion. That's I was raised Catholic, and I didn't know what was going on 90% of the time. I just didn't. I, I and I was young, you know. And I was I went through the CCD classes. Well, I got kicked out of the CCD classes, but I got back in. You know what I'm saying? Pull some strings. My uncle got me back in. And, uh, and but I didn't know what was going on. It was hard for me to understand. It was a lot of theology. Some people they thrive in that. They love it. And I And And I get it. I think it's different flavors for different folks. That was hard for me. Everybody can understand a meal. Everybody can understand sitting down, breaking bread, having a conversation. Because that's where the healing happens. The wars in the world, and we're all going to face one, whether we realize it or not. I didn't know this, but the United States has been in some type of conflict, like 90% of its existence. We've been in some kind of war. We know conflict. We know war. We know it that some people know it even in even greater dimensions than others ever will. So how do we recenter from a world that's at war? How do we make sense of life when we're at war internally? I think it's at a table, y'all. I think it's when we sit down and we break bread and we have conversation with each other and we share what's going on in our life and we share about the good and we share about the bad bad over an incredible meal. And that's how the book ends. After all the pain and after all the suffering, we're invited to a meal. Eugene Peterson said it like this, Not everyone can comprehend a doctrine. Not everyone can obey a command. But everyone can eat a piece of bread and drink a cup of wine and understand this simple simple statement, my body, my blood. This is how the early church thrived in persecution. It wasn't their organized gatherings. It wasn't their big worship services because they were not allowed to have that. The word church is not even in the Bible. The word church, I don't even think, is a biblical... God hasn't called us to belong to a church. He's called us to belong to a family. And you can do this and not really belong to a family. Like One hour on a Sunday is not enough to belong to a family. God has called us into a family, into deep community. And that happens around the table. That happens around a meal. That happens when we share our heart and share our soul with somebody. And they see the tears. And they see us crying. And they see us laughing. And we laugh with them and we cry with them it's it's this beautiful thing that happens that brings healing into our lives and i'm thankful for sundays i'm thankful for the time we get to worship and come together but the real miracle power is at the table and we look at a world that's in pain and we look at a world that's suffering and and, and doctors can't figure it out and scientists can't figure it out and we're trying to blame all this other stuff but well maybe maybe we just need to come back to the table as a family maybe dad the greatest thing that we can do for our family is just create a safe place at the table where we can come and be our real selves and share what's going on in our life, and share about what's actually going on in our life, and take the mask off, and be who we really are for a moment around our families with no judgment or no ridicule, a safe place, a healing place. Maybe if we came back to the table, we wouldn't see all the craziness. And we can try to legislate it, and we can try to like pass laws, and I'm not against that, but I think what's happened is we've left, this ta- we've left the table. I'll never forget. I grew up Catholic. I told y'all I didn't remember 90. I didn't understand what was going on most of the time, but I had an uncle. His name was Dominic Persicini, and he made sure every Sunday, after we went to church, we were raised Catholic. We went and ate, and it didn't matter if there was 1,200 people in the restaurant or 12. We would stand up and hold hands in the restaurant, y'all. I am not kidding. We would join hands, stand up at the buffet in Milton, Florida, Shanghai Buffet. We'd get up. Everybody knew he would make us all join hands. And he would share something that I could understand. That's what I remember. Thankful for the priest, thankful for, you know, that stuff. But the real real healing for me and the real clarity came at the meal after church. And man, there's so much fighting against that. I don't even want to go into 2020. I don't even want to talk about that. But that's one of the things that went away. We weren't eating at the table anymore. We were afraid of each other. We were afraid to talk. We were afraid to get face to face. And it disrupted something. Now I think we're healing and we're coming back to the table. And there's just something good. There's just something awesome about sharing a good meal with good people. And talking about our faith and talking about god and talking about what's going on in our lives acts 2 verse 46 this is how the church stayed together in the persecution like we'll probably never see in our lifetime every day they continued to meet in the temple courts they weren't even allowed into the building they wouldn't let them in the building so they sat outside and they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts That's where the power came from, in my opinion. That's where the power came from. They knew each other. They loved each other. They were in this deep community. There's a family in our church. I don't want to use his name. But his his sons are grown now, and they're really incredible men. Successful companies. I mean, just, just incredible, two incredible men. And what he does is every week... He lets someone, a grandchild, pick out whatever food they want, and he buys it, and they have a meal every week. And he prepares it at his house. They can pick whatever they want, and they come over, and they have a meal together every week. I'm telling you, that's a goal. <laughs> that's something to really look up to. That, that is, I mean, because how hard is that now? I mean, really, think about that. How hard is that? to just get your immediate family together to share a meal once a week. I mean, that's like, whoa, how hard is that to do? Because we're busy and we're going and there's like, some kids play like four sports. You know what I mean? And, and there's practice and there's tutoring and there's so much going on. So we're busy, we eat in a hurry and we run to the room and it's like, man, we gotta, we gotta slow down. We gotta come back to the table. We gotta get our family, I mean, there, I don't know if there's anything more important than that for our faith and for our family and, and, and to really walk this thing out the way that God has intended us to walk it out. And so I'm going to tell one more story and then we're, we're going to pray. Has anybody ever been to Roseto, Pennsylvania? Nobody? Okay. I'm not going to like call you up here, all right? I promise. I Nobody's been to Roseto, Pennsylvania. Okay. There's this little town in Rosetta, Pennsylvania, and i got to give you the backdrop of how it formed. So late 1800s, early 1900s, around 12 immigrants from Italy, Rosetta, Italy, came over, they came into New York, they, they slept in a pub on a pub floor in Manhattan, and then they traveled west to find a place where they could build homes and they ended up in a little town in Pennsylvania and so what they did was they they went and they were they worked in the mines so they found jobs working in a similar similar uh, field and they started inviting their family over from italy to come and join them and so 12 ended up being 100 ended up being 300 and they established this community and the first thing they built was this was a catholic church and that's it, i got a picture of it right in the center of the community so that was the center And then they built these homes all around this. this, It built it out of stone and rock, out of this church. And and so so they they built these houses. I'm going to show you another picture. They built these houses in a similar way that they grew up with in Italy. And so the the front porches were massive, and they faced each other. And so there's a reason for that. And so this little town that formed, and, and so it ended up with 10 people. It grew, and it became larger, it became larger. And they kind of had a self-sustained community. But within, like, by 1950, nobody had heard of Rosetta, Pennsylvania because nobody left it. They had, they had a bakery. They had a flower shop. They had, they had, you know, regular stores. And, and it was this little self-sustained community. They had a grocery store, doctor's office. They had that church and a, and a priest. And, and so around 1945, there was a priest that was placed there at that church, and he, he gave out one Sunday seeds to everybody in the, in the community. He says, "I want you to go and grow gardens behind your house." And he, and he literally they had little little classes and taught the people how to grow gardens. And so they, they ate together, they lived together. they had all things in common. So around 1950, a doctor named Stuart Wolf, Dr. Stuart Wolf, who worked outside of Rosetto. But he came into Pennsylvania in the summers to work on a farm and he was a teacher. He worked at the University of Oklahoma. And so he was asked to give a keynote and he gave this keynote and then a doctor in the community came up to him afterwards and said, you're, you're not gonna believe this, but I've been practicing medicine in this town for 30 years and no one's ever died of a heart attack. And we know heart disease is the number one killer, right? In the US, it's like, it's, it's a big deal. And he couldn't believe it. And he said, not only that, it's like the people don't get sick. He's like, I, and so it intrigued this, this Dr. Stuart Wolf. And so he started interviewing families. He pulled records, pulled medical records, and he found out that I'm gonna just, just, just kind of give it to you straight out of, this, out of this story, that for men over 65, the death rate from heart disease in Rosetta was half that of the United States. The death rate from all causes, in fact, was 30 to 35% lower than the rest of the United States. So they hired dieticians and they found out they cooked everything in lard and they drank wine every night and smoked cigarettes like chimneys. So it was like, okay, they thought maybe it's the food, right? Maybe it's the food or maybe, maybe it's genetics. So they, they did all of these tests and, and this is what the doctor came up with. And I'm going to just read his words. I remember going to Rosetto for the first time and you'd see three generational family meals happening on the front porch three generations of people on the front porch. They're at the bakeries, walking up and down the street, sitting on their porches, talking to each other. The blouse mills where the women were working during the day while the men worked in the, in the slate the, the slate quarries. They worked in, in, in rock. It was, it was magical. And so his study, he, he came to the conclusion that they literally were staying healthier because they were eating together. Isn't that wild? And you can Google it, Rosetto, Pennsylvania. And there's been people that have come in and tried to disprove it. They've tried to find out what it is. Maybe it's something else in this little town of Rosetto, Pennsylvania. But this doctor, Malcolm Gladwell, did another study on it in his book, Outliers. That's where I found this story. And he found the same thing. That when we share a meal together, when we sit down at the table we're talking about the lord's table today miracles happen at the table miracles take place at the table of the lord and that's where this is heading that's the end of the story it's this wedding supper it's this great feast the healing that we're going to receive i believe when we enter into this next realm of what god has for us it's not going to happen in a in a in a sanctuary it's not going to happen in a Doctor's office is going to happen around a table with friends and family. And I'm a believer that miracles happen when we take communion. Miracles. And sometimes, you know, we can can kind of take it for granted. I know familiarity sometimes can make it feel like, well, I'm just taking communion. We've done this before. But I want you to think about it a little different today. Because I don't think science argues against the Bible. I think science confirms the Bible. And this little bitty town in Rosetto, Pennsylvania, is just one small example of, I believe, the healing that can come into our lives when we share the table together. And So this is what I want us to do. I want you to grab that communion. You should have packets right there in front of you. And We're gonna take communion together. And if you don't have one, you can just slip your hand up and we'll bring you some. If I can get some help, just put your hand up and we'll bring you some communion. If I can get some help with that, please. And so this is what I call kind of to-go communion here. <laughs> I think this is a little, little different than what they did in the New Testament. I think at just some point in a big meal, they took a piece of bread and they took a cup But I want to read this to you, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it's so important. I received my instructions from the Master himself, and I passed them on to you. Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, he took bread. He gave thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body broken for you. Do this and remember me. After supper, he did the same thing with the cup. He said, this cup is my blood, new covenant. Every time you drink this cup, remember me. What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every single time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death and resurrection of Jesus. You're gonna be drawn back to this meal again and again and again. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. And then he goes on a few verses and says, because you haven't been doing this, some of you are sick. He goes right out and says it. He says, some of you are hurting because this meal, this healing meal, is not a part of your life. And so today we're gonna come to the Lord's table together and you can take that bread. I'm gonna pray over it for us. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son. We thank you that his body was broken. His body was bruised. We know that according to Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, that he endured great brokenness so that we could be made whole. And God, today on this Sunday, on Father's Day, we pause to remember you to remember the brokenness that you endured, to remember the pain of being broken in relationship between your father when you were on the cross and you looked up and said, God, why have you forsaken me? You had relationships that were broken. We acknowledge that, we remember that now. God, and we believe that because of the brokenness that you endured, that you can put relationships back together in our lives that if there's things that are broken in our own life, we look to you and know that you're the great physician. And so, Lord, we come to you humbly and we thank you for your broken body. In Jesus' name, amen. You can take the bread. And then he took the cup and he told his disciples, he said, this cup is... This is, this is me pouring my life out. This is my blood. This is the new covenant. It basically means a new promise that I'm making with you. And the one thing he asks us to do, not even to understand completely what it means, he doesn't ask us that. He just says, remember me. When the, in these moments like this. So God, we thank you so much for your blood. We thank you that you poured yourself out like a drink offering. You poured yourself out so that we could be filled up. We thank you that Isaiah 53 again says with the the stripes on your back, with the blood that you shed, we are healed. And so I want you to just think about somewhere in your body right now that you may need healing. Is it in your mind? It could be something physical but we believe that God still brings healing we believe that God's able to heal our bodies to heal our minds to heal our souls and Lord we remember now we remember that sacrifice God we remember the cross you were poured out so that we could be poured into God and we thank you so much for that It's in your name we pray. Amen. And you can take the cup.